0: to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. We're going to read verse 1, we're going to find where he was last week, and then we're going to read the text into what we're going to see today. So I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. And like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house and sets his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision." The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he speaks when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I love these short Old Testament Prophet books, um, when you really dive into them, there is so much there that is significant for us, but it's a little bit uh, different reading it just on the surface. So I want to just review for a second before we begin to walk through this. Habakkuk would have grown up under the reign of King Josiah. Josiah made phenomenal, holy, righteous changes within Judah. And things would have been good. Josiah dies. Um, He reigns for 31 years. He dies, and new kings come to power. And now Habakkuk is alive, and everything that Josiah had done has been rejected by the new kings, and idol worship and immorality and all kinds of things are happening. And so, gone are those days, and things have fallen apart again in the nation. And so, Habakkuk carries a burden. It's a heavy burden. And as he learns about this foreign nation called the Chaldeans. We might call them today Babylonians are going to come in and God's going to use them as an as a instrument of judgment upon Judah because of all the things that they had been doing. He has some, the prophet does some really big questions for God. And one of the first questions he's asking is this, is God actually sovereign and in charge of history? Does God ultimately know what he's doing to allow sin to be so rampant, and to allow a country like the Chaldeans to come in. For him, it seemed as if sin was rampant everywhere. He's been given this, what's called an oracle. This is a heavy burden message that he's to, we, we, we're going to talk about today, he's going to write it down. He was also supposed to speak it, and he's burdened by it. He knows that a king who's evil by the name of Nebuchadnezzar is coming in, and they're going to bring judgment. So he's got a big question. Is God sovereign in charge of history? Is God still in control? His second big question that we talked about last week is how can God use such an unholy instrument like the Chaldean people upon his covenant people? It seemed to Habakkuk that God was just sitting by and not really doing anything. habakkuk had been crying out to God, God, how long are you going to allow this? And it seemed to him as if God wasn't interested in doing anything about the situation. So in light of that, we found him last week in chapter 2, verse 1, going to a tower, climbing up the tower somewhere in Judah, maybe in Jerusalem, and he's waiting. And this is where we find him. He knows God's going to answer him. He knows God knows his heart. He knows that God is going to to continue to share things with them. So he climbs up the tower. He knows that the Chaldean army is continuing to march through nation after nation and bringing their brutality and bringing all the things that we read a while ago that we'll talk about um, today coming. And he's waiting for God to speak in the midst of that so that he could gain some perspective. And so here he is, he's seeking God with the heaviness of his own heart. He knows that the appointed time is going to come. And he's waiting and he's waiting. And I want to talk about this for a moment because probably some of us are in the very same place that Habakkuk is in in our own lives. Sometimes we have cried out to God for a long time. Maybe it's for a kid. Maybe it's for a spouse. It may be for some other kind of situation. And we have been crying out to God and waiting And crying out to God and waiting. And it seems as if, from a human perspective, it seems as if sometimes, God, are you not interested? Are you you not hearing um, my righteous cries to you? That I believe my prayers are in line with your word. And I'm crying out to you. And and God, I just kind of get the sense that you're not hearing me. That maybe you are uninterested in, in what has happened and taking place. And we wait. And we wait and we wait. I think one of the one of the most significant stories in the Old Testament to teach us about God's sovereignty and God's work is the latter part of the book of Genesis. There's a 17-year-old boy, he's a part of a mixed family, and he has a dream one day that in the future his brothers and his family are going to come and they're going to bow down before him. He has two dreams about this Same subject. His name is Joseph. And eventually God's going to get him from a 17-year-old to be the second in command of the whole entire Egyptian empire. From the point of the dream to the point that he's in that place, if you know the story, there is a lot of things that go on in Joseph's life. Not great human things. He's rejected by his brothers. He's lied about, they lie about him to the father. Um, He is sold as a slave. He works faithfully for this guy named Potiphar, doing everything that needs to be done. Potiphar's wife approaches him wanting a sexual relationship with him. He will not do it. He, He has great respect for God, great love for God and righteousness, great respect for Potiphar. But she pursues him and one day he has to run away from her and she accuses him of trying to rape her and he is put in prison. He gets in prison. He's faithful in prison and God blesses the prison and, and he interprets dreams. And, and he asks one guy that goes out, listen, when you go up there, will you, will you tell them that, that uh, will you remember me? And think about me and that maybe I can get out of this. And so the person goes up and forgets about him. And he stays in prison, and he's there. Now, I want you to hear this. Eventually, Pharaoh has a dream, and nobody can interpret it. And a guy goes, it's in Pharaoh's court. He's like, oh, yeah, I remember a guy. You remember when I was in prison? There was a guy down there, and he was able to interpret a dream. And so they bring Joseph up. He interprets the dream. And Pharaoh says, okay, you are going to be the right-hand person since you've interpreted this. There's going to be seven years of great abundance. There's going to be seven years of great famine. And Joseph, I'm going to put you in charge of all of that. That ultimately ends up being a couple of decades. Now, I want you to listen to this because I think it's important for us, a very practical thing that Habakkuk's dealing with and that Joseph is dealing with. Some of us have been waiting for God to bring restoration maybe to a marriage or restoration um, to our health or restoration to, to whatever the case may be. And we have been waiting for a long time. From our human perspective, this is what we do. We think that time has been wasted. God, get on with it. Bring the answer now in this situation, in this setting, because I've been waiting and I've been crying out to you. And I want you to know this, that if God is asking you to wait and he's asking you to trust him, trust him, trust him, trust him as we wait. Those years, those months are never wasted months. They are never wasted years if we are in pursuit of God. What is God doing as we wait? He is refining us. He is expanding our understanding of who He is. And so sometimes we think, I've been waiting for years of this, and I've been crying out to you, God. And and we've been trusting God, and we've been going back and thinking about who God is. And sometimes we can think, boy, it seems like I've wasted those years of waiting. And I want to put forth this morning is that that time is not wasted. It has been a refining time for God to get you and I in our life to where we need to be. For Joseph, he could have looked at his life and thought, I've been forgotten by my brothers, rejected by my brothers. I've been a slave. I've been falsely accused of something that I didn't do. All I wanted to do was honor Pharaoh. Somebody else that I interpreted their dream and help them. They were able to, to get out of prison. Then they forgot about me. All of those years, he could have thought, God has forgot about me, and yet Joseph continued to trust, and he was able to see that those years were not wasted. Are y'all with me? From our human perspective, we have to be really, really careful that we don't transfer to God what we think God's time frame ought to be and accuse Him and have an idea that somehow He's not concerned because our God is deeply concerned. All He is is good. This is what His nature is. And He will be good to us in our lives. We are not wasting time. If you are now in a situation where you are waiting and you're waiting and you've been, you think, I've been waiting, when is God going to come through? I just want to encourage you to hang in there. You are not wasting your life if you are in pursuit of God and you are walking with God, He is doing something. For those of us that have walked with God for a long time, can we not look back over those moments when we did cry out to God for a long time, and what what did we learn? He was at what in those situations? He was at work. He was doing something. And we are who we are today, and have the kind of deep trusting faith in Him, because we trusted Him in those moments, and in those time frame periods, of our lives and god was at work doing something really important so i want to talk today about god's standard in the midst of wickedness how do you and i live this letter came this oracle came to habakkuk let me remind us 2600 years ago this is unbelievably practical unbelievably helpful for us to understand what god is up to so that we can learn some things but let me tell you a little bit about judah and just remind us judah had a huge issue at this time it was a nation that had abandoned truth truth had been discarded um, in, in in many of the years in which judah was there Truth in the culture had been abandoned. It had been discarded. It had been thrown away. It had gotten lost. It had gotten recovered under Josiah. Now it's gotten lost all over again. And so all over Judah, this was happening. Just a rejection of God's word, a rejection of God's truth. The system that arose and that replaced what Josiah had done was the truth was established by Josiah. And now they rejected the truth and they'd gone back to a lie. And so I want to ask the question this morning. As we begin to walk through this, what happens when a culture has no appetite for truth at all anymore? What happens in a a culture among a people that know God and have walked with God, but now no longer those people have an appetite for the truth? There's no desire for the truth. We look at our country. We have a rich spiritual heritage when it began. There had been awakenings in our country. There have been moments in our country where, where truth guided things, it guided the government. There's a shocking reality that government people thought about. How do we, how do we make laws that honor God and, 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 and gone are those days? And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And so what happens when a culture no longer has an appetite at all for the truth? Here's, here's what happens, and this is what was happening in Judah. And it's what is happening in our country. The first thing that happens is this, is that people began to be seduced to any kind of lie that people come up with and began to proclaim and began to gather around. When there is no basis for truth, then the individual becomes the basis for truth. We hear this all the time in our culture. Well, that's your truth. I have my truth. That person has their truth and everybody has a truth. And there is only one truth, and that is God's truth. And so when, when a culture has no real appetite for truth, a culture is seduced into any kind of lie and any kind of thing, and there is no basis for truth but the individual. The second reality is this, is that over time, people began to gather around ideological lies. Not around truth, but ideological lies. And in our country today, our media is deeply complicit in this of just having a narrative, pounding it and pounding it and pounding it. And I'm talking about conservative media has an agenda. Liberal media has an agenda. And we don't, by the way, uh, please, please agree with me on this. If not, I've failed you over 14 years. We don't follow what the media says. We are God's people. We follow what the book says. So when conservative media lies, what do we do? We call out the lie. When liberal media lies, what do we do? We call out the liberal lies. We are God's people. We're not following culture. We are following the truth. And so what happens and what's happening in our country today, there's all these ideological lies on both sides of the fence of whatever spectrum things are. And so what God, I think, is doing is wanting to call the church back to one perspective, and that is the biblical perspective. They would be unified over what God's word says. And here's the third thing that eventually happens. When a culture no longer has an appetite for truth, you will, people will be seduced to any kind of lie, and you hear it, you'll sometimes hear stuff out there, and you're like, we'll say this out loud, I can't believe people believe that. And yet people believe that and they will gather around it. And it just seems strange to us because it's not logical and we know that it's not truth, but they will will do that. And here's eventually what happens. The third thing is that the people who gather around that become enslaved to these lies in such a deep way that it only brings deeper sorrow and stronger disillusionment. And I want to put forth this morning, this is the culture in which we live today. This is where we are. So as God's people, we live by the written text. So God gives an oracle to Habakkuk. And as He gives this burden message, we see there in verse 2, look look there in verse 2, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Here's the first point this morning. This is what he tells Habakkuk. Habakkuk, I've got a message for you. It's an oracle and I want you to write it down and then I want you to tell it to the people and teach the people. So here's, in other words, here's the thing. The written word of God becomes the only standard for God's people. This is what we follow. We follow the standard of the word of God. And so he tells Habakkuk, write this down. And write it down in such a way that it's plain for everybody to see. And so when they see it and when they hear it, they will run and they will tell it. So I did a lot of research this week to kind of understand this. Verse 2 is really difficult in the Hebrew to understand what is the meaning. But I think the idea is there. We can also go back to uh, some other prophets' writings where they say something along the same lines. Here's the deal. Habakkuk, here's what I want you to say. And I I want you to write it down. And then I want you to get people to run the message, take the message that I'm giving to the people, and I want you to get the message out as to what I, I am communicating to Judah at this time. So here's what happens. God is now speaking a fresh vision with the prophet of Habakkuk to the nation of Judah. He's speaking it to the prophet. He writes it down plainly, puts it on paper, and then people were to take that message and they were to run with it and to go tell it to other people throughout the land. In other words, it's kind of an early idea of the Great Commission. Christ has asked us to run with the gospel, to take the gospel to the nations, teaching them to obey what Christ has said and what Christ has communicated. So he says, Habakkuk, write it plainly so that people can read it. And as people read it, then I want people to run and I want them to tell it. The context indicates that, and I did a lot of research this week about this, he's not, ta- he's not telling them, flee to another country, run away. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, run with the message and to tell the message. Listen to what Daniel said about this same idea. This is Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. God telling him, but you, Daniel, shut up these words and seal the book until the time of the end, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, watch, here's, what's how, here's, here's the purpose. This is important for the church, for us to understand this. So, with Daniel, he was to write the things that God had told him. God says, Write these things down, seal it up, and then it's going to get out, the word's going to get out. And people are going to run to and fro. And as they run with the message and tell the message, knowledge is going to increase. People are going to learn more about what I'm saying. This is the same idea with Habakkuk here. Write this down plainly. Let people read it. Let people run with it to tell the story. So when they did come to pass, people would come to know the incredible truth and the important aspect of all of this in the midst of the people. So the written word of God is our standard. The written Word of God is our standard. Here's the second thing this morning. Look at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. There is a, secondly, this morning, that Habakkuk's going to be used as he writes this down, that there is a certainty of God's Word being fulfilled. There is a certainty of God's word being fulfilled. So he says it. still the vision awaits. It's a point in time. It's not here yet. It's going to come. The time is going to come. It's going to hasten as well to the end. So there's going to be a a twofold aspect of this. It's going to happen in Habakkuk's time, but then there's also going to be a future aspect of this vision that is going to come in the very future. Those of you who are hot, I think the air conditioner just turned on. There's people fanning, okay? It's going to cool down a minute. Listen to this, church. It's difficult sometimes, let's be honest, to look around at all the sinful stuff in our culture and to continue to wait. It's hard because we know that devastation and destruction and violence and all that kind of stuff is continuing to happen and take place. And God is asking His people, He's asking us today, to learn from what Habakkuk had to learn. And what Habakkuk had to learn was simply this, is that God is going to fulfill His Word. Are we in agreement about that? So until He does, what do we do? We remain faithful. We continue to trust and know that He is sovereign. He is in charge of history. And so when things unfold and and come to fruition, that we wonder about what they are, we know this, that the word tells us that God is certain, certainly going to fulfill the things that he is speaking. So Habakkuk is waiting on a tower. God, I've been crying out for you for years. How long are you going to let sin just be rampant? And now you've spoken and you're going to use the Chaldean people to bring judgment upon you. And so God, I'm still crying out to you and I'm waiting, trying to find understanding in regard to what you are doing. And so he waits and he waits and God speaks and he says listen I am going to do this and what I say I'm going to fulfill it will continue to the end it's not just going to lie around my words just don't lie around and not do anything my words are alive they're at work and you need to trust what I have to say listen what the writer of Hebrews says this is Hebrews 10:36 and 37 for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God You may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It's interesting. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Habakkuk chapter 2. So look at the cohesiveness of this. We are not those that shrink back. We are those who take our stand, and we wait. Jesus hasn't come back yet. So what are we waiting on? Jesus to come back. So what do we do? Well, the writer says this, you need endurance to wait, to continue to do the will of God as you continue to do the will of God. You know this, that as you do that, you're going to receive what is promised, that as we wait, and as we wait, God is going to do this. And so he He now at this moment, the writer of Hebrew does, goes back to Habakkuk 2 and says, listen, let's learn from what Habakkuk had to learn in his generation. That God's people have to wait. The coming one is going to come. He will not delay. His words aren't going to just lie. They will come. And so in the midst of that, what do we do? We learn to live by faith. So the vision, he says, God says, awaits until it's appointed time. It hastens to the end. It's the word that means pant. We are, according to to God here, in regard to the book of Habakkuk in regard to the rest of the word, we are to pant for the coming. We are to long. How do we pant? Well, some of you, if we made you go outside right now, you haven't panted in a long time and we made you run down to the lake and back, you would be, (sighs) haven't done that in years, you would be panting. Now that's from being tired. There's another panting that comes, and it's this. It's a longing for the work and the word and the majesty of God to be manifest in our midst. It is to long for the presence of God. And so he tells Habakkuk, Echoes of Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, God. I am longing for you. I am waiting. This is the call. How do we live in a culture of evil? We wait and we pant and long for God. We run, we wait, we hasten. We know that God's word is going to be fulfilled. And so as we wait, we long... To soak up and lick up and eat and intake and cover our lives, immerse our lives in the truth of God's Word. We are not those who shrink back. That, by the way, has been the problem for the last 30 to 40 years. What has the church done in this country? We have kind of stepped back and let the culture run its course and try to find other answers to address the issues that are all around us. And I think the issue is this, is that God's people must pant and long for God's presence. Becca, will you put that next verse up there, the Isaiah verse? I want you to look at this verse about waiting. It's Isaiah 64:4. From of old no one has heard, or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who do what? What's the action? Who wait. Who wait. You know what the possibility is in this country? God may not revive the church. And so what do we do if He doesn't revive the church? We wait, knowing this, that God's not going to allow His Word just to lie around and not be fulfilled. God will fulfill His Word. Look, look at that again. Let's read it out loud together, okay? We're going to say the address, and let's read it together. It's okay to read things out loud that's not Psalm 119. That's okay to do that, okay? Let's read this together. Isaiah 64, 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Notice here, this waiting is not wasted time, is it? No. It's, it's trusting, it's action. I am waiting, knowing that the certainty of God's word is going to be fulfilled the issue for us is this as we wait the world just seems to be crumbling more and more every day so so what do we do in the midst of that i want to give you some principles now we're not going to be able to read all of this but i'm going to i'm going to give you quickly five principles about the ways of the world and you'll know them they're all around us and so he talks about the ways of the world in verses four and five And I'm going to come back to the middle part of verse 4 in a moment. But I want to give you five principles about the ways of the world. The first one is simply this. Our world is run by crooked pride. So he speaks about there. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. The, The soul of the heart of the world system is not upright and righteous before God. Our heart, as God's people, needs to be upright and righteous before God. But the world system... Gives no consideration of God. So he's describing the Chaldeans, who, by the way, in the very end times, there's going to be an awakening of, of a reawakening of of Babylon in, in the sense of the world system. And so now he's dealing with this and he says this here's the thing about the world system it is run by crooked pride. The soul is not up, there's a blatant, prideful mockery of God that continues to rise in our culture. Secondly, they live lives of intoxication. So he says there, moreover, wine is a traitor. The Chaldean people loved alcohol. It dominated so much of their culture. They forced it upon the other nations as well. And when you are intoxicated with alcohol, then you lack control and you lack self-control. And this people who, who are consumed by this and who are drunk by that, the alcohol and any other thing that we are inebriated by, power, lust, whatever it is, it has such a powerful aspect that there is a lack of control. Have you seen what's been happening kind of in the northeast of the country? Where just people are walking up to other people and violently hitting them. And punching them, men doing that to women. There's this out of controlness that is dominating everything around us, and we we see it even here in our conservative area of the country. And there is a intoxication in all kinds of things, not just in alcohol and. Other drugs, marijuana, all of this stuff that marijuana was going to help people. If you will look at all of the studies where they've legalized this, they have way more problems than they had before. It's another form of intoxication. Crooked pride, lack of control, living lives of intoxication. Intoxication. Matter of fact, in Daniel chapter 5, you ought to go back and read that today. I don't have time. Um, But in Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer in power. There's a new king that's in power, and they're partying. And they're just living it up. And God says to Belshazzar, "Um, uh, You're in trouble. You're in trouble because tonight it's over for you. And immediately that night, he dies. And the Medo-Persian Empire takes over. He loses his power. And they've lost it. Third thing is this. The world is driven by never being satisfied and at rest. So he says there, he is an arrogant man, in verse 5, who is never at rest. The world is never satisfied. It is ever seeking rest. Always seeking more. Fourth thing about the ways of the world. The world is consumed by greed. So he says in the last part, or the third part of, of verse 5, his greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has eno- enough. The idea is the grave it, or death is so big, it just swall- continues to swallow up people. There's a lot of room for everyone. And the world system runs on this. It runs on Greed. I think you are like me. I'm, are you concerned about the financial direction of our country? Are we going to crash? Is it, what's going to happen in the days ahead? We are trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. There's not enough taxes to pay for this and to fix these things. What, what's, what's behind all of that? The world system is so greedy that it just consumes and consumes and consumes because it's just like death. There is always room for more to come in. Nothing is ever enough in the world. The fifth aspect that drives the world is this. He says in the last part of five, he gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. There is grave injustice that is done to people by the world system. I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's a climate agenda that's going on in the world today, and it's driving many things. I read this week there's two nations in Africa that have gotten some outside people. The British government actually is funding this. They've gotten money, and they're going into these two countries in Africa who have for their whole, as far back as they can think, have been herders of animals and eaten the meat and grown their animals. And because there's such an agenda today in regard to saving the planet, by the way, again, we must be discerning people about all of this. So I will say this. As God's people, we should be good stewards of this planet. And the reason is... God made this world, and so we want to honor God by that. But we do not want to get caught up in the lunacy. Now, let me tell you what's going on that the British government is funding. They are feeding children and addressing what they perceive as we've got to make shifts in our eating habits, forcing children to eat four different kinds of insects, and introducing that into the diet of the children, this is greed. Because what's behind all of that, it's shrouded in care for the children, but what's shrouded in that is somebody's going to be making money on all that. That's the way the world system works. And people want to get in. By the way, they're talking about that kind of stuff for us. Even in our country. If you'll actually look and you'll do the research... That kind of stuff is happening and taking here. Grave injustice. Uncaring. You probably saw this this past week or past 10 days or so. That Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, bought road signs in this state of Texas, quoting... Jesus' words, that it's, it's important for us to love our neighbors. This is what the billboard said. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than these, and it was about abortion. That if we want to love our neighbor, then we will fight for them to kill the unborn. Using scripture to do that. This is the ways of the world. So what do we do? Because sometimes I wonder, is it going to get any better? And if it doesn't get any better, how do we navigate through that? Look at the middle part of verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And here's the answer for us the righteous shall live by his faith how do we live in a world that is fallen apart how do we do that how do we maintain our direction when the heart of the world and the appetite of the world is continually moving toward more violence more rejection more mockery of god what do we do? How, how, do we, how do we live in this way? We live this way. We continue to trust that God has set forth a standard for us to walk in, and that is His Word. He will fulfill His Word. He's not just going to let His Word fall to the ground, and it's not gonna, His Word will accomplish its purpose. Isaiah 55, as the rain and the snow come from heaven, it waters the earth and gives life to it. So it is with God's word. It will not return to him. How? Void. It's not. He's going to accomplish his purpose. So what do we do? What do we do? The abuse of children in this country is increasing at an astronomical weight. Do you notice that as well? Just the just the just the discarding of children and and them. And, and what adults are forcing upon them? So how do, how do we live in the midst of this? What do we do? Well, again, I want to remind you that God has just given to Habakkuk, this is the way of the Chaldean people, this is the way of the world, it's pride, it's violence, it's rejection, it's immorality, it's intoxication of things that, that are destructive. So how do we live we live the same way that we have, God's people have always been called to live, and that is to trust by faith in who God is and to walk in faithful obedience to that. So he says, this is the way the world lives. But my just people who have been justified, who have been saved, who are righteous because of the blood of Jesus, they are to live by faith faith they are to live by faith hebrews 11:6 says this without faith it is impossible to please god for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him martin luther before the reformation left germany and he took a trip to rome and when he got to Rome, he was going around all the things that the Catholic Church had set up as shrines and things that you would go to and, and do things and see. When he got to Rome, one day he came to the church of St. John's Lateran. This is where Pam and I have been there when we lived in Germany. We, took a, we had somebody watch our kids for five days and we went to Rome and we went to this church. It's a church where they say is the staircase that Jesus walked up to talk with Pilate. And so the Catholic Church got that from Jerusalem. They brought it over. They created this church. And they, they say that the blood of Jesus had stained these steps. And so the popes and the church would teach this, that you could get an indulgence if you would crawl up these steps on your knees and your elbows and you would crawl up and you would pray. And if you would do this, the pope would grant you an indulgence. Pam and I stood at the bottom and watched that and when people got done, then we just walked up and we just prayed walking up that, that God would break this cycle of unbelief that still permeates Roman Catholicism. Luther started doing that. And as he climbed every step and he began to do this, he thought to himself, I'm going to get an indulgence. And as he was climbing up, he got about halfway up, and he remembered these words from Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. So Luther's on his knees, he's crawling up, he's he's crying out, he's 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 wanting the Pope when this is done, the Pope's gonna give me an indulgence. He remembered these words that the righteous, the just live by faith. And it said that right there in the stairs that he's crawling up them. He remembered that, that he stood up right there, and he walked down and he went straight home to Germany. Many reformer uh, historians of the Reformation believe that the Reformation probably happened on those steps. Where something inside of Luther's heart said, this is not right, I cannot buy into a false system of belief. I've got to buy in to the eternal word. And if I am going to walk with God, then I will walk by faith. Later, Luther would write these words describing that. Listen to what he says. He said, before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, He still further increased our torture by the gospel. Luther had a time where he didn't understand things correctly. And he's at a bad place. And then he said this, But when the Spirit of God, when he was on the steps, and I thought of those words, he said, I understood those words. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Then I felt born again like a new man and I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. What's he describing there? His salvation experience. That it took place there. It's 1117 and I've got pages left and so we're going we're to, we all indulge me. We'll get back to this next week. But I do want to, finish with this I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 11 we'll finish this up next week Becca, can you go back to that Isaiah verse and put it on the screen? If you just leave it up there for us. yeah. Let's look at it again. Would you just read it with me? You don't have to read it out loud. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. I love the Old Testament. It's the foundation, the beginning of our understanding, our revelation of who God is, who Jesus is, how the Spirit works. There's such glory that's there. And I really admire some of the Old Testament saints. We get to live on this side of the cross. What a glorious time we get to live in God's sovereignty of history that we get to live under the new covenant. I, I just deeply admire those who lived before it. And I think Hebrews chapter 11 tell, communicates to us in the new covenant that we ought to learn something from the people of the what covenant? The old covenant. They probably could have used some people already. The writer of Hebrews probably could have used some New Testament saints already. He'd really faithfully walked with God. There were a lot of them already. But he didn't. He went all the way back and said, I want to highlight for you the uniqueness of this reality of the people that went before us and their faith. And I love what Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16 says, if you would read with me. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. With this idea of waiting, I want to give three principles as we finish today that I think are really important. Are you and I, Willing to walk with God until the end of our days. Not having all of our prayers answered. Not having all of our longings come to fruition. Are we willing, like the Old Testament saints, to look at the coming of Jesus from afar? They never got to see it. They didn't get to live on this side of the cross. They didn't get to know what it's like for you and I. This whole, it's amazing. I'm going to get excited for a second. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of God's people. They didn't get to know that. They got to have tastes of that. And they looked at it from afar. And they were willing to walk with God, though in Abraham's life, God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. and people are going to come back to this land, your descendants, and they're going to be a nation right here. Abraham never owned a piece of ground. In the Promised Land, and yet was willing to walk with God, though he, though it was the fulfillment of that was 400 years out. He was willing to faithfully trust the things that God told him. So I want to ask all of us that question: Are we the kind of people who are willing to wait to be the Isaiah 64 kind of people who know this that God acts for those? who wait for him, they don't demand him to do something that's man-centered or whatever the case may be, but we, we're just going to trust, we know that his words are never going to lie, fall to the ground, not be accomplished, so I will wait, and I have to wait, and if I have to wait until I'm no longer breathing, and I don't get to see all the things that I've asked God to do, Will it be worth it? And I want to put forth this morning, it'll be absolutely worth it to walk with God. Because ultimately, He's going to accomplish His purpose in His time, not in ours. Here's the second thing. They were willing to walk with God until their end, even though they didn't get to see the fulfillment of the promises. Secondly, Are you and I willing to live as strangers and exiles in the world's, according to the world's ways? Are we the kind of people that are willing to say no to what the world makes a big deal of? And we're going to just faithfully live as just righteous people to believe by faith in who God is. Are we willing to speak this truth? That I'm just passing through. This is not my home. And I'm waiting for a heavenly city that's going to come. And I'm willing to wait. And that's the third thing. Are we the kind of people who are willing to long for what is heavenly and to be content to know this, that walking with God is the treasure of treasures, So when this life is over, I step from this life into God's presence, and it's worth it here, and it'll obviously be worth it there when we get to see the greatness of His glory. And these Old Testament saints looked at it from a distance. They were willing to walk with God until their end, even though they didn't get to see the fulfillment. They read about the promised Messiah. They read about the promised Messiah. He has come. And we're living in the midst of the work of the promised Messiah's work and what that means for us, being indwelt by the Spirit. And are we willing to be like them? To not have to to demand God to do what we want Him to do, but to be the kind of people who wait, knowing that He's going to accomplish His purpose, and it's worth it to walk with Him that way. And I tell you, the blessing comes... For those who wait, who are Isaiah 64-4 people, the blessing comes in this, is that God says, I'm not ashamed that those people belong to me because they long for me with every fiber of who they are. And note, notice what the end of verse 16 says there. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city he has prepared for them a city so how do god's people walk in a world that system is just so off course we walk by faith trusting that god will accomplish his work in every promise that he's made so that's where our confidence rests Your confidence can't rest in me. It can't rest in that we're a church that's unified and loves one another. Though those things can encourage us, that, our confidence rests that a holy God spoke. And when he spoke promises, he will accomplish every promise. And so therefore we wait, we wait, we wait knowing that his words will never lie dormant. He will accomplish his great work. Let's pray.